For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again, how are you doing this week? I can't wait to share this week's episode because we haven't done a fashion, a straight fashion story, if you like, for a while. And of course, this is a fashion podcast, but I do love to go into the related topics around sustainability. And so I make shows about science and the environment and workers. But I don't want to forget what got me into this world in the first place, which is clothes. (laughs) Seems obvious, but actually sometimes look back and you're like, wow, I didn't make an episode about clothes for ages. So here is one, because I still love how we make clothes and the stories about designers and also the history of fashion. You've heard that phrase that fashion mirrors the times. It can really kind of be a bit of a barometer for what's happening right now. But also it's an amazing lens to look through to understand what happened in the past Fashion and culture and history are all intertwined and I think they're such a rich place to play. So I'm always looking for resources on this. I love it when I find books and documentaries about different eras in fashion. And I love when I find Instagram accounts that tell these kinds of stories. My guest today is one of those. She is the wonderful American fashion historian and Instagrammer Rachel Elspeth Gross. And we connected on Instagram and we decided it could be super interesting and fun to pull out some of her posts and look at the pictures and search for the sustainability angles. And they range from things like wartime rationing and make do and mend to how home sewing used to be the norm rather than the exception. And some of the ways in which designers of the 60s, for example, were experimenting with new materials. And we also talk about this amazing story around how disposable fashion was once a fad that began with a paper dress, literally designed to be thrown away. (laughs) That says a lot about where we are today, right? This conversation is full of intriguing stories like that from fashion's past. And we think that it might help us make sense of the present and encourage us to look at it in new ways. I hope you agree. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a fun one. And actually, I'll just give you the heads up that we've got another one in the works along similar lines with a fantastic costume designer. And that one will look at the history of power dressing. Now, if you want to check out the visuals for what Rachel and I are discussing as you listen, and I think you should, open the show notes on thewardrobecrisis.com to see all the photographs. And tell us what you think. I thought you might like to tag us on Instagram with your own favourite fashion history moments. And if you do, I'll regram some of them. Maybe I'll even put them in our newsletter too. Remember, I'm at Mrs Press and the show is at The Wardrobe Crisis. And you can find and follow Rachel. She's at rachel.elspethgross. Please do share the podcast if you like it. It really helps us find new listeners. And now let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Rachel Elspeth Gross. I'm thrilled to be here. This is one of those lovely times when Instagram delivers on its promise of inspiration and connection, because I feel like we've all been there with social media that it can be a time sink, it can make you feel bad, it's an endless opportunity to compare yourself with other people and find yourself lacking. But I love it when it does what it should do, which is connect you to a window on people's fantastic work. A post of yours popped up in my feed and I became an instant fan. Oh, thank you. 
I love it. It's, it's a place that I get to tell stories. My favorite thing in the whole world is stories. I want to know about people's lives. I studied apparel design. I studied costume history. I worked in the fashion industry. Um, I work now as a fashion historian. And if you study the history of fashion, you cannot help but learn the history of the world and the way the world has treated people, whoever they were. It's impossible to separate a culture from what they choose to adorn themselves with and what they choose to assign value to. Mm. If someone were to hop on your Instagram after listening to this, what would they find? I hope they'd find inspiration. I mean, that's kind of cheesy, but a wide selection of biographies about fashion designers, photographers, models, muses, and other figures in and around the history of fashion that I find to be personally intriguing. What I loved was that there might be a familiar to me iconic photograph of, let's say, a Dior dress or of Davima, the iconic model in a Dior dress. But also for me, there were loads of new discoveries. So people that, I'm not going to say they're obscure, but just they went on my radar. So they could be uh, fashion designers that aren't hugely well-known or popular, or they could be costume designers from Hollywood's golden era. And I love how the captions tell stories that I I found completely new. So that's why I loved it. I do try to focus on people. I think of them as left behind by history. These oh, are well. people who did work that impacted like either their culture or the planet while they were alive. And after death, for a variety of reasons that usually turn out to be unpleasant at best, um, have sort of been left out of the canon of history. Mm. It's usually race or ethnicity, gender, sexuality. Sometimes it's because you're a woman. And those are the stories that I find the most fascinating. A friend of mine said, you know, it's like breaking a story in journalism, but, you know, from history, it's a story that's already there, but we've just moved on and didn't bother mm. to pay attention. Wow. Okay. We're going to get into some of the stories that you tell, but first of all, I just wanted to ask about you. What, what fascinates you about the history of fashion? <sighs> I mean, we all like to feel pretty or whatever gendered version of that word. We all want to feel good about the way that we look. And we all communicate with each other by how we dress. We humans have this unique ability to put on something and imbibe it and become it. And what people choose to think of as beautiful is a fascinating subject I could talk about forever. Mm. But how that has shifted over time, how that is impacted by everything from war to technology to anything that could happen. It all comes out in the clothes. What do your cat-shaped pink and purple headphones say about you, Rachel? <laughs> and I have a four-year-old who's going to be really mad at me if I break them or lose them. <laughs> okay, we have planned this if listeners are wondering how we could spontaneously remember all this stuff. But we decided, didn't we, that we'd structure this interview around storytelling related to particular Instagram posts of yours, Rachel. And the account is at rachel.elspeth.gross. I chose them because I thought that they would be interesting jumping off points for a conversation about sustainability. And we'll link to them in the show notes as well so everyone can see the visuals and read the captions. But either I will or I'll ask you to, Rachel, describe the photos as we go since this is an audio experience. Okay, are you ready? Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Awesome. I want to start with the paper dresses post. It's actually a carousel, this one, because this is the first one that made me reach out to you. I'm going to describe the first image. I've got it here. It shows a kind of classic 1960s, very of the era shift dress. There's three models. They're in this dress with a bold black and white graphic print and a couple have got flowers, but one has got a photo of what looks like my cat Pix's giant face on the front of it. (laughs) Tell our listeners about the concept of the paper dress. It's fascinating. I mean, first of all, let's be clear. This was a toilet paper commercial. (laughs) What was it? (laughs) I mean, that photograph isn't. That's what grew out of it. But the Scott paper company, which is like napkins, paper plates, toilet paper, wanted to have, you know, a really big Mad Men 1960s kind of a promotion. And they came up with a paper dress. It was a dollar and 25 cents. And if you saved your coupons, tabs, whatever, and mailed it in, you could pick between, you know, a few different choices. I think they had a um, very harsh black and white kind of a contrast print. They had some optic art. I think there was a floral And it picked up. People really liked it. And as a result of it, I think they sent like a half a million of them out. You know, it's just paper. Well, it's paper that's been treated. It's it's a little plasticized. It's more, less water soluble and, you know, harder to tear. But it's paper. But that that sort of classic little A-line-y kind of triangle, isn't it? It's very, very (laughs) simple shape. But then with this graphic print. But essentially disposable essentially disposable. Some of them were intended, I mean, it it blew up. People, designers started manufacturing them, of course, at higher price points. Other brands glommed on and would use images that they owned advertising. Some of them were intended to be colored in or embellished. Were they? And when was this, like 60, what? Uh, 66, I think is the year that it started. And I think it was dead before the 70s. You know, it was a fad, right? It, It came and it went. Now, I'd actually seen this before. I hunted for it, actually, Rachel. I couldn't find it. But in an old BBC or Pathé News piece of footage, like kind of news report, the fun story, the novelty story of the day. And there's a girl in London in a kind of park location. And she takes off the dress, balls it up and hurls it into the trash can. And I always that always stuck in my head as like, what an incredible metaphor for the future of unsustainable, so-called disposable fashion. Yeah. I mean, we were lucky it was just mostly paper. Obviously, if we were to do the same thing now, if you think about that with h well, we do. Or, yeah, <laughs> we do. Right. 75 years ago, whatever it was, 80 years, it was more innocent. It is an interesting kind of prescience. I guess historically, from a historical perspective, there was an excitement around throwing off what you stuffy clothes your mother would have worn, let's say. And this is like the perfect antidote, isn't it? Short, disposable, outrageous, huge print. Probably coveted. And then you get to be the one to say no, and I'm going to put it in the trash when I'm done. I mean, I think there's some of it in there. The 60s were, from what I understand, a very teenage kind of a generation. And yeah, I think all of that goes into it. I think the ability to treat something as disposable is enticing to humans. I wish that was not the case, but it is. If you also look at the time period, I'm big on the impact of World War II on everything. And I think that that's, you know, an offshoot of that. I think that after so many years of so many 
hard things. You have a new generation who didn't experience it, but got all the benefits from it. Maybe they weren't as reverential for, you know, resources as their parents had been. Absolutely. And and I think when you consider teenage rebellion or any form of rebellion from old systems, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's like you'd have your, your older family members telling you, well, that's not done and that's bad behavior and you want to act out against it. But also during the war, there was the whole, well, the circumstances were such that it wasn't possible to be wasteful. There was rationing. You had to make do and mend. And that wasn't a lifestyle choice. No, it was inflicted. And I think people were very happy to participate for quite a while. But once the war was over and those realities did not immediately disappear, a lot of farmland, trains, really important infrastructure was specifically destroyed during the Second World War. Because how better to take over a culture than to ruin you know, their supply lines? So... Coming out of that, yeah, if you don't have that experience, if that is not what you were concerned about, Mm. something your mom or grandmother keeps telling you over and over. Maybe I'm going to jump actually now to Dior because the timing Mm -hmm. makes sense, having just talked about this post-war period. Let's jump to this post, which, well, you posted it in November 2018, but this is an image from 1947 of Christian Dior's classic famous bar jacket. It's actually a very famous photo, isn't it, Rachel? And I'd always thought it was by the iconic British photographer Norman Parkinson, taken in the 40s. But I did a bit of research. And in fact, it's by a German fashion photographer named Willy Maywalt. And it's from 1957. Anyway, the suit today is part of the V&A's collection in London. But do you want to describe it? Yeah, the bar jacket you think of the shoulders as the bar, that probably makes the most sense. You think about a really formal curtain rod. I mean, it's a strong, wide shoulder. as has a nipped-in waist. There's a peplum-type skirt that meets at a V at the center front of the bodice. And beneath it falls an enormous skirt. I mean, it's like three times more skirt in terms of volume and fabric than anyone was allowed to have. And that is... Absolutely a reaction to wartime austerity, isn't it? It is. I mean, the moment that once the war was over, one of the first things, obviously, that French old couture tried to do was bring back, you know, fashion shows to restart. They needed the money, the funds, the industry, the work was good for everybody and the whole planet. And once those restrictions were lifted, once people were able to purchase fabric and they didn't have to count buttons or measure the elastic in their underwear. Let me just halt you there. Say it again, because I don't think people know about the buttons. Oh, my gosh. Okay. (laughs) All right. So wartime austerity, if we're talking about the Second World War, when applied to clothing, there were government restrictions. And we are talking about in Britain in France, eventually in the United States, which affected the production of clothing. You had to think about all of the places where you could remove fabric and not make something too sexy and scandalous. Oh, but hang on. It wasn't just sexy and scandalous. It was all about making sure that you weren't wasting these precious resources. Right. right. But with, yeah, get, get rid of fabric, but don't have, you know, societal problems. All right. So there were <laughs> yeah. rules about how many buttons, how many buttons you could have, how many zippers you could have, the placement, 
whether or not you could use certain types of pleats, whether or not, this is how men's suits stopped having um, pleated front trousers and how they started having vented backs and single breasts. It was a way, I mean, they existed, yes, but when they were enforced, everyone had one. All those extra inches, all those extra buttons, all that extra material all went to support the armed forces, um, the allied forces who, you know, beat Hitler. So that was pretty important. (laughs) But when we came out of that, when that was no longer the reality, we didn't have to save fibers to make sure our guys, you know, could have uniforms. People wanted the opposite. It was, yeah, it's an oscillation away from a restrictive silhouette towards a more buoyant, opulent, festive, traditionally feminine. I just think listeners are going to be so interested in this and and have lots of comments because the concept of government telling you that you have to have not more than a certain number of buttons and you can't have a kicky pleat. I mean, it's just amazing. Maybe we could envisage a future that's driven by sustainability austerity. And this is not a cheerful subject, but whereby that might happen again, where we would say, well, resources mean that we're going to regulate how much you can use and how wasteful you can be. I bet people have got thoughts on this. You should definitely get in touch with us and let us know. What's interesting about what you just suggested to me is that people were voluntarily doing this. People bought in, agreed, wanted to help. They saw there was a problem and they knew that there was a way that they could make it better. Some of that's messaging and marketing. Some of that's understanding where you are in the world. Isn't it interesting, though, that we're so spoilt for choice now that we can't fathom it, and yet, actually, in a different way, a different example, it's happening again. There's shortages in the in the grocery aisles again. And actually, there are signs in the supermarket saying, please don't buy more than you need. But we're being asked to self-regulate, but we're also being restricted by circumstance. And so, actually, it's not too far a leap to imagine that this could be extended to fashion or to what we make. I mean, I live in Florida and I wish that that was not it's the fantasy of people being okay with that and trying to help and trying to do things to make, you know, it better for everybody. I, I wish, God, Australia sounds lovely. Well, I'm not saying everyone obeys, <laughs> but I'm just saying it is a, it is a, it's an interesting thing to see it. Because if we, we'd had this conversation three years ago, we would have said, well, it's unfathomable. I mean, perhaps we'll talk about this, what we can learn from history, just from a fashion perspective. But let's get back to Dior. In 1947, he released what came to be known as his New Look Collection because the then editor of Harper's Bazaar, Carmel Snow, used that phrase, New Look. He didn't. She did. It's such a new look. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. It's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, that she said this one thing and it became the sort of way we talked about a silhouette for a decade. But what? tell us more about what what he did with his collections and his silhouettes. So we've talked about the bar suit, but all the dresses that came after again, huge volume of fabric, right? I mean, for a lot of it, yes. And I do think, I mean, if you look at the interwar period, which is one of my my favorite periods of fashion, there was already a trend existing towards a slimmer silhouette, more hips, more busts, but less, you know, hourglass figure shaped. I really feel like people think of this as the golden period of haute couture. They think, you know, this magical time when anything, anything was possible as the world rebuilt. And he really took that concept and ran with it. If you look at the decorative elements, if you look at his ball gowns, there's a particular pair that I love, Venus and Junon. They're probably the most apex Barbie kind of <laughs> images you can think of. They're literally named after goddesses. 
they're rhinestones, crinolines, sort of fake bustle bumps, all covered in pastel sequins and sparkles, low bodices, skinny arms. I mean, it's everything you can think of is in the 1950s. I've got, um, have you ever read his biography, his autobiography, which came out uh, in the 50s? No, I have not. I should. I've got an old, like one of those orange penguins from the 60s. I pulled out a quote because he was obsessed with making women into flowers. And it's actually just quite weird. And especially when you consider, and I was going to say, that post-war or during the war, the silhouette had liberated women, you know, trousers, trousers being the thing, I think, but that you no longer had to be sort of trussed up in this restrictive stuff. And then he came back and said the clothes that he designed were for, and I quote, flower-like women with rounded shoulders, full feminine busts and hand span waists. But it was, it was sort of making, rendering women decorative again, which I'm not sure about, even though I love the beauty of his work, obviously. What do you think? I think some of that is response to women being in the workforce. Um, one of my favorite books, it's called Women at Work. During the Second World War, women were the only people at home for many, many families, and they had to go work in factories or on farms or in offices. And so when people who survived being away during the war came home, wherever home was, they suddenly had a, a generation of women who enjoyed independence and enjoyed being able to go to work and have their own paycheck make their own choices. So what you're saying makes sense to me. It's both beautiful, but it's also, it is restraining. When I wrote my book, Wardrobe Crisis, there is a section on this period of time. And the story that always sticks in my head that I always remember the quote from was protests that Dior met with when he arrived on a tour of New York. I think it was New York, could have been Chicago. Anyway, the US. He'd gone there to flog his wares to the iconic department stores and he was met by angry women with placards. And one of them said, which I just love it, Mr. Dior, we abhor your skirts to the floor. I mean, it's got a beautiful rhyme screen. <laughs> I mean, Coco Chanel said only a man who has never been intimate with a woman could make an outfit so uncomfortable, something like yeah. that. And she had something pithy to say about everyone, not suggesting we should take her words too seriously. But yeah, I mean, this is, if you think about the women's suffragette movement, if you think about the arc of all of that, it was starting to, you know, by the 1930s, things were starting to change. It's, it's responsive. No wonder that by the 60s, people wanted to throw off being restricted by the new corsetry. But before we get onto that, I want to stick on the war and ask you about this very, I think it's so fascinating, this thing, Teatro de la Mode. You've made a few posts about this. Tell us what it is. Oh, my goodness. So the theatre of the day was the first, or the theatre of fashion, was the first couture fashion show after the Second World War ended. If you think about the cost of production alone to have a fashion show, Ocator Fashion Week, you need models, you need lighting, you need a stage, you need seats, you need people to hold the event, you need electricity to you know, power the lights and make the curtains work if those things are happening, you need music, and then you need samples. You need a look from every design for every model who's going to walk in that show. What I'd said before about production lines and trains and infrastructure being purposefully destroyed by the Third Reich, 
that affected fashion. It was impossible or at least extremely unlikely to expect that a fashion show from however many different designers could happen. Mm. So some very creative minds. Um, Eleanor Lambert was related to this, and I love her forever. Eleanor Lambert is a PR woman who came up in the 1940s. She created the International Best Dress List. She organized the concept that we now have a global fashion calendar. She's responsible for fashion weeks being structured around geography rather than people's names. She also is responsible for the Versailles show in 1973 that we all, well, some of us are fascinated with. Eleanor Lambert got involved with this and what happened? It's a lot of names. I'm going to try to be concise here. Essentially, the idea was developed that they would use mannequins, not full-size mannequins, but I think they're 70 or 80 inches, centimeters tall. So they're almost three feet. They are miniatures. This is something that has happened in the history of fashion. You make a miniature model and it travels. So that's what they did. They made miniature models. So they shrunk the collections. They did. And also dispensed with human models. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you think about just for a glove, think about how much fabric it would take to make a glove. And then if the model's hand is like a Barbie hand or maybe slightly larger, you can use scraps. You can use anything. It's, it's, it's much cheaper and faster. And what I'm obsessed with, you've seen online, after the Theater de la Mode happened in uh, 1946 and then a half season in 47, on uh, 1949, there was an, a train that France sent to the United States um, as sort of a recognition of all of the long-term multi-century relationship between France and America. And one an of the actual gifts, train. And that, yeah, 49 boxcars. Um, these are the boxcars that American GIs were shipped off to Normandy, places where men never came back. Yes, yeah, so all of those boxcars packed up full of presents and sent to the individual United States. It was not a government project. It was the citizens. The French National Railway had a large amount of war veterans, and they were hugely invested in saying thanks to the people who they'd been working with rebuilding railroads for years. The French fashion industry, the Chambre Syndicale, worked out 49 haute couture dolls, same models, same bodies, different year, different designs. And that industry's contribution to the French recognition train was 49 dolls, each one costumed in a historic outfit between 1710 and 1906, that represented that designer's favorite era of history. It's real French historic costume from 200 years. Give us some examples of some of the designers involved. Oh my gosh, there's it's people like Balmain did it, Dior did it, Schiaparelli did it, um, Germaine Lecomte did it. She maybe did it twice. That's a much longer conversation. <laughs> Chanel did not. Leilong did not. It's a big project that I'm working on, figuring out all the all the reasons why and all the all the things. They are at the Brooklyn Museum in New York. Are they? They just got returned there from the Met. They've been at the Met for almost a decade in the Costume Institute. How amazing. Mm. What a wonderful story. I hadn't heard the train story until I, I read that post on your Instagram. So thank you. But I did know about those, those half-size 
little models. They're so charismatic. And also, I think if you ever, if any of you have been to, for example, the big Dior exhibition that traveled a couple of years ago, you'll see parts of the exhibition that reference that. So it's something that people are aware of. But I wanted to just share the work of this very clever designer from UTS in Sydney. I saw her graduate collection. Her name is Rebecca Zhang. And it was so beautiful. And she had used this half-size mannequin concept inspired by that. And I asked her why. And she said it was because of the how hard it had been during COVID. She was working remotely. She didn't have access to fabric. She isn't a privileged student with lots of money to buy stuff. And she said it was a very difficult year for her. And yet she'd innovated by shrinking her samples for that very reason. And the, the result was absolutely gorgeous. So we'll share a link to her work. Very clever. All right. Like I said, no wonder after all of this, by the 60s, there was this feeling of liberation and everyone wanted to throw off these restrictions that had gone before. I want to go from paper dresses to metal ones. Around the same time, mid to late 60s, 67, I think, that those paper dresses were being promoted and worn by kicky teenagers. The Spanish designer Paco Rabanne was making his name. And listeners who watch the runways might have noticed that this house is very hot right now in 2022. There's a new creative director. His name is Julien Dossena. He's French, I believe. He's very modern. He's been moving into the digital fashion space. He did a, an NFT collab with Selfridges. But I say all this because it, it makes sense, right? Because Paco Rabanne was always this name associated with this futuristic vision. So do you want to, Rachel, talk about this post? I live in a fantasy world where one day I am going to find a Paco Rabanne DIY belt or dress kit that is not $500 <laughs> for America. Oh, he's a wonderful person. So they made these kits? He did for a while. I mean, if you look online, you can find them. I posted about him the other day and I got like, three or four vintage account followers were like, we have one. I think I would love to spend $500 on a belt. But DIY, do it yourself <laughs> at home. Yeah, it would be a little kit. So imagine like little plastic circles, the rivets, and you some instructions and you would make it yourself. And I love that concept. Like here's all the parts, make it. Love it too. It's, it's just so much fun. But what, what do we, do you want to describe this, the, what we see in this image first? Yeah, the very first one is Danielle Luna, and she's reclining like a French lady on, a, you know, maybe a divan or a three-quarter length couch. She's a, an iconic black model. She's arguably the first black supermodel. She's smoking a cigarette, making direct, very confrontational eye contact. And she's wearing a three-quarter length sleeve, full-length dress that is covered in tiny circles that all have little loops of metal like you'd see on a pair of earrings or something. It's almost like chainmail. If instead of, you know, metal to defend your life, it was sequins to get rid of bad energy or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's wonderful. She's hugely powerful. You can see in the image, she's just, she's there. Ah, oh, she's a force. And he worked with her a lot. She was one of his muses. And a lot of his clothing is very similar to sort of the feeling that you would get from looking at that image. It is arresting. It is powerful. It is empowering specifically probably of women. Some of the skirts are very short. Some of the necklines are very low. But it, it's not degrading. It's not sexualized. It's almost empowering. And I'm sure some of that is the era. I'm sure some of that is his personal philosophies. He had a very... Um, I think the kind way to say it is he had a lot of spiritual beliefs that 
people don't typically subscribe to. He believed he was an alien from another planet. He talked about it openly. Did he? Oh, gosh. Okay. Did he? He had a lot of out there views, but he was, I don't know, being able to restrain yourself enough that you can be that personally complicated and still be successful. So much in this. Um, First of all, you and I share this love, don't we, of just the characters. Fashion's full of characters. Real people with real wants, desires, interests, and all of the foibles that go along with those things. But so much eccentricity. I think some of that's a creative thing. And it doesn't have to be creative, like specifically fashion or even specifically the arts. But when someone has a very particular vision and skill set and they have to do it, Sometimes they're a little stranger than other people, but those are also my favorite people, so I cannot say anything too terrible about them. Same. But I was going to say about Raban, so much in there about a completely new take on materials, reinvention of materials. And during this time, there was this boundary pushing, you know, you'd see in the 60s, some of the dreadful materials coming to the fore, like vinyl. We know they're dreadful now, dreadful for the planet, but also this willingness to push boundaries and say, we want to use materials in new ways, right? Yeah, and that idea of using them in new ways is really important. And I'm sorry to link this back again to World War II, but I have to. Wartime has historically been very good for textile production and development of new plastics. You know, we all know now today that they are probably terrible, but nylon, elastin, vinyl were at a point in time, mid 20th century, they were revolutionary. By the time the war ended in 1945, there were many achievements that had been developed within the textile industries, plastics that we think of today very commonly. By 1965, 1967, that's what, 10, 12 years later, they'd made it to the mass market. They were now in, you know, production of clothing. I love that. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it, just to see how these things developed and also how attitudes to them have changed. But I always love just to try to put our minds or ourselves in the shoes of the people who were there at the time, because these things were considered so exciting. And it's only in hindsight that we can say, well, you know, the environmental impacts of the production of some of this stuff is suspect, but they didn't know that. All right, let, let's talk about this post Kansai Yamamoto, because I think Raban is very artistic, but this is next level, isn't it? It's very far from the disposable fashion idea. So you made this post in September 2020, but it shows an image from, when would this be? 73, 70 something? Yeah, I would say early 70s is my best guess. You know, we all think of David Bowie and we think of his specific iconic looks and through no fault of his, because he's historically been very good about crediting designers, the names of the people who made those costumes are not always known today. Yeah. If you think about Ziggy Stardust, that's Kansai. That's... And what about those trousers with the incredible circular outy flair? I don't even know how to explain them, but they're like balloons. Uh, <laughs> it's magical. It really is. And again, that's another instance of volume being so important and revolutionary and those trousers I'm looking at now, those platform shoes, I mean, they remind me of the three-quarter length pants that you saw in men in the 18th, 
19th centuries. I mean, it's it's a flashback. It's also a flash forward. It's quilting. His use of quilting is, that is not a particular uh, material arts kind of a thing that gets a lot of attention. Rachel, do you want to describe the first image in the carousel? Oh, yeah, of course. So there's a woman and she is wearing what look like epaulets that are probably woven together out of cords, rainbow-colored cords, everything from violet to orange. And she's spinning, and as she spins, they turn out from the epaulets at her shoulders. (laughs) There's a whole carousel of images here of this Japanese designer's work. He was born in the 40s, came to the fore in the 70s, and as as you said, worked so very closely with Bowie. But pick one more image in the carousel and tell us about it, Rachel. Oh my gosh. I love the image of Lady Gaga wearing the cat, big old hair. I think it's seven or eight. Oh yeah. That image I love because it's a retro, it's a vintage piece. Her followers are the kind of dedicated people who will look that up and they will find out about him and they will read about his life. It's like an Easter egg that she's leaving. It's a clue. It's inspiration for her her audience. And I love that she does that. (laughs) All right. Talking of iconic fashion moments, images, and individuals. We're recording this just as news is broken of the passing of Andre Leon Talley, uh, such an iconic fashion figure. I bring that up, Rachel, because you have a post that you shared about fashion documentaries and the opening picture on the carousel is from his, the fabulous documentary. Hopefully people have seen it. I watched it on the plane once. I'm sure it's on Netflix, but it was by the director, Kate Novak, and it's called The Gospel According to Andre. What is it about him, but also do you want to talk a little bit about your relationship with fashion documentaries? Andre Leon Talley, and he was atypical in many, many ways, and larger than life, and opinionated, and those opinions came from decades of hard work and trying very hard to understand a world that he was in love with. That's a wonderful documentary. If if someone hasn't seen it, I would rent it now. Pause, rent, watch, come back. (laughs) It's his life story. It's how he grew up and how he found his way. And it's, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful film. So that's from the film poster. But, you know, in the last 24 hours or so, there've been tons of images of Andre Leon Talley going around all social media. And in addition to his expertise and education and abilities, he was a man who had a huge amount of personal style. Probably most common, at least what I'm seeing right now, are these pictures of him and his caftans. He was known for wearing them. He, I don't believe he ever really felt the need to talk about his personal life too much, but he wanted to feel good about himself and he liked feeling majestic from what I've read him say. Mm. And a caftan does that. It announces you. He was such a, a towering figure. I don't know how tall he was, but hugely tall. He's a huge guy. And then you might imagine that some people want to diminish that stature. And he was like, I want to make it bigger. I love that idea. And I think that, I mean, from what I understand, that does sound possible. That sounds reasonable. Well, it's so fabulous. Like He's a rim filler, wasn't he? He was fantastic. He was, and he <laughs> wanted to be, and he made sure that those rooms allowed him in. 
All right. It was interesting that in that carousel, you've chosen some other fashion documentaries that you like. One is Battle of Versailles, which you mentioned before. One was Dries. What a beautiful film that is. Everyone should watch that. It's one of my favourites, I think. I was surprised not to see the one about Manolo Blahnik in there. I don't reckon it's the best film, but he's so great. It's so funny. And that is a wonderful documentary and I definitely have seen it. I work pretty hard to keep my content online very specifically curated to women's apparel. I could easily get off on tangents on shoes, accessories, jewelry. I say that just because I'm a Manolo fan and I've been lucky enough to interview him and he was obviously friends with, with Andre Leontelli, but it makes me always panic a bit. Maybe panic's a bit strong, but it makes me feel a melancholy that we're losing these icons, which of course we must as time passes. But when does fashion get consigned to history? When do we start looking at it with the historian's eye? Do we need some space and time on that to be able to evaluate it? That's an interesting question because I don't think there's a solid answer. I believe that a lot of mitigating factors exist, but I do think that a similar quantity of things has to happen in order for something to be relegated past time. If Right now, we are looking at the early aughts and we're thinking about how tragic certain choices were and how awful certain choices were. A few years ago, we were doing that with the 90s. I'm sure a few years ago, we were doing that with the 80s. The interesting thing about apparel design is that there's only so many concepts to refine, to redesign, to recreate, to make an homage, to reference someone else. The only ways we can make things be new is through the lens in which we view them. And I think those lenses changing is really at the root of the question you're asking. Mm. What has to fundamentally, culturally change in order for us to look back at something and feel separate from it? Mm. I asked you at the beginning of this interview what interested you about the history of fashion and how you came to it, but what do you think we can learn and why should we keep looking back at fashion's history? And I, I perhaps ask this question through a sustainability lens. You know that phrase, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. We all know this, right? We hear it. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. I believe that if that is true, and I do believe that that is true, I think the inverse also has to be true. And what I believe the opposite of that is, we have to look back at history and find the solutions. I think that a lot of problems have existed systematically for a very long time, and that there are many examples in our past, in our shared past, that could give us clues on either how to solve those problems or how to not start from scratch in solving those problems. Mm, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? We ought to teach more fashion history in schools. And I know, of course, you can study that as your main event, but I don't think there's a great deal of fashion history taught on design courses. I have this book. I'll send you a, a shot of it. It's Eleanor Lambert, the lady I was talking about before. It's from 1977, I think, called The World of Fashion. It's a giant index. It's every country and it lists every designer who comes from there, every university that is teaching there, every graduate program related to fashion. And, you know, if you were to think from a 2022 perspective about what the 70s in fashion looked like, you would be very surprised if you read what this book talks about with Africa, with the Middle East, with Asia. It is much more 
forward thinking and reasonable than we would give this era and this, mm. you know, American fancy lady person probably credit <laughs> for, you know, knowing. Oh, that makes me just want to ask you about a favorite post from further back in history that you could perhaps share with us. Just pick a story that you think we ought to know more about. Oh, that's so easy. Um, Emily Louise Floge, maybe Emile Louise Floge. She was an Austrian fashion designer and she was the partner slash mistress slash muse slash common law, probably spouse of a uh, Gustav Klimt. Many of the paintings that you'll see of Klimt, including the kiss of a woman with frizzy hair and a very geometric, loud print dress. Those prints on those dresses are often not in Klimt's imagination. Emily was a rational dress designer. She took the corsets off of women 15, 20 years before Chanel claimed to. She was an artist, a craftsperson. She and her sisters ran a very avant-garde, very borderline subversive type department store and atelier out of their homes in, we're talking like 1904, 1906, 1913. And she's one of these people that I've spoken about some here who quite literally changed the world while she was alive, who to this day, art students study her portraits, people purchase the prints of her, of her dresses, but nobody knows her name anymore, probably because she was a troublemaking woman who refused to get married legally. Because we focus on the man, the genius man. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Her stuff is definitely worth digging through. And she had some Madame d'Ora, who's a really famous photographer from the same era, a female photographer from the early 20th century. That's pretty crazy. Not crazy that it existed, but crazy we don't talk about it. There's some really wonderful photographs that she took of Floja's work. Before we move on, let me just pick you up on that phrase, rational address, if people aren't familiar with what you mean by that. So there's a period of time when women wore corsets and big poofy skirts and were expected to faint and take laudanum. And around the same time period that the suffragette movement was in its inception, women who have always been responsible for producing their own clothing, some of them began to consider how the clothing could serve them. Mm. The idea of making clothing you could work in is rational, <laughs> but it wasn't popular. This is kind of where the concept of a skirt and a dress comes from. Up until this point in time, if we think of it as a dress, if you look at something in the 17, 18, 1900s that looks like a ball gown, it's most likely two pieces, a bodice and a skirt. It's an economical choice to do things that way. It's just realistic. The concept of a woman wearing a shirtwaist, that's where the word shirt comes from, a shirtwaist, a belt, and a skirt, if we think of the Gibson girls in the early 1900s, it comes out of this movement because it is easier to do your work, be that feed your family, go mm. to the factory, take notes, answer the phones, whatever these things are, when you can be comfortable and move. Rachel, we should do another podcast all about this because you could talk for 100 years about it, couldn't you? Because I was thinking about also just how how impractical it was to have your skirts trailing in the mud if you wanted to zip around. Or we could think about the advent of bloomers so you could cycle. That's how we got French doors. French doors came out of Marie Antoinette's court. I was just about to say that, thinking about bloody Versailles and those mm. stupid, what are they called, panniers, but those <laughs> absurd dresses that are 20 times wider than the woman. 
<laughs> I mean, it was probably easy to get away with people, get away from people if you didn't want to talk to them at parties. <laughs> All right. I want to finish on what is definitely my favorite post of yours. I'm a book collector too. And I, I, I was going to say I'd kill you for it. It's a bit extreme. I wouldn't kill you, but I'd love very much to steal this particular book. It's actually a question in two parts. One is, I'm just going to tease you and say that I know you love to sew and you love a big skirt. <laughs> and what about the post? The caption is only because the theme of my project is that everything needs more lace. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, in 2018, I was working on this multi-year long project where there was a real life historical figure, Virginia Odlini, the Countess de Castiglione who was an Italian countess who lived in the Parisian court during Napoleon III's empire. Lots you could say about her. She is the most photographed woman of the 19th century. The only person who could maybe beat her is uh, Queen Victoria, but there's no record of how many photographs total she took. Countess Castiglione used photography in its absolute infancy to document her social successes. When something went really well, Here's 12 pictures of me in that outfit. <laughs> she had a huge amount of money and she used it for fun. So 2019, I started recreating her images. I remade a bunch of her ball gowns and then I had a photographer friend of mine help me stage and reshoot her photographs. Everything had lace. Everything had flowers. But also you sewed it and you made it. Mm -hmm. Yes. I pleated something like 25 yards of muslin by hand, which is a lot if you don't know. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So you love to sew. You're a capable sewer. I think lots of our listeners love to sew too. But why don't we finish on, as I mentioned, this fabulous book about sewing. Why don't you describe to us the first image in this carousel? Well, it's the cover of a book. It's kind of like mustard yellow. And on the cover of it, it says a collection of sewing tips by world famous designers. And then in what looks like handwriting, there's I don't know, 9, 12, 15 designers' names. And it's everyone from people like Bill Blass and Maurice Rentner to Jacques Dufault and Bika of Milan, Joseph Walker, Sharon, Shannon Rogers. It's big name American designers, some European designers, and fancy people, people whose clothing would be really expensive. Mm, and yet, if you click through to the third image, and we'll share a link so everyone can look at this, the contents of this book is just golden. It's magical wording. There is some seriously. <laughs> you have it there, Rachel, because I mean. Oh, so just to explain in the kind of like past the table of contents where it's showing who's going to be in this book, there's a very yeah. terrible illustration of just about. <laughs> every designer who contributed and some of the wording is snarkier than others you can tell there's <laughs> you know some opinions here on people's stuff but there's chapter titles like facing the facing how to keep snaps under wraps on the first page there are some that are so like think about these designers big name fancy as you say designers and this book which is about home sewing is all full of these fab sustainability things like needling your way to smartness on a budget. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's basically a how-to book telling you how to iron, work with iron on fabrics, how to, all about buttons, what else? Yes, it's tips and tricks. It's like, it's an insider's view on how to make something yeah. fabulous, but here's how to not struggle doing it. 
And yes. It's actually one of a series. There's a few of these. And I can tell you, I was lucky enough to find one. This is from 1967. I know they go at least into the 70s. They're not that expensive. Maybe that will change. But they're fun. And you're right. There is a lot of information and there is a lot of sustainability related kind to the planet, kind to the people types of information in here. And it's, you know, it is a little tongue in cheek and it is a little silly, but that's kind of part of the appeal to it. The reason I love this so much is that I can't imagine, but I would love to see all the big name designers of our era coming together to tell you how to do it yourself. Before you said that there were Paco Rabanne, make your own belt kits. <laughs> we don't have that now, but wouldn't it be nice? I mean, my, my subversive self says, I wonder how many of them can sew. Ooh. And I'm not trying to pick at anybody in particular, but I do think that's an interesting question. Some of my favorite designers, the people who knew how to drape and knew how to sew, and they understood the work that went into the garment construction, and that informed their decision-making. They weren't turning it over to other people to do the hard stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, it takes you through sewing some basic projects. It gives you tips and tricks. It shows you each designer has a little section. This comes from an era when people were taught to sew almost without thinking about it, either their mothers or their grandmothers, or if they were women, they went to high school and had home economics. This is presuming, this book presumes that you have at least some kind of basic knowledge and that you'd like to go deeper. If we had a book from our designers today, we would need a book to preface it that would teach us the basics of sewing. Very few people can do that. <laughs> this has been lovely. I could actually talk to you for three days, but I don't know if anyone's up for that. Let us know. We might do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. No, I'm always happy to talk about clothes. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press.